Good afternoon, Emmanuel. Again, you can go ahead and, and turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. That's going to be the sermon text for this afternoon, Jonah chapter 3. Uh, but let me open us up in a, in a brief word of prayer. And Father, we come to you and you, we know that your word is truth. And Father, we pray that you would help us to see the truth of your word this morning, that uh, your spirit would illumine the words of scripture and give us understanding. And Father, I pray that you would uh, help me by your spirit to speak clearly this afternoon, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are many jobs and companies who have some sort of disciplinary process in place for their employees. An intermediate step, perhaps, before an employee would be terminated. Uh, so if an employee's performance is not up to standards, or if uh, the, the employee may be guilty of some unethical practice or some other misbehavior, they may get a, a formal warning, something that goes into their employee record. They're put on notice that they need to change, they need to perform better, uh, behave better, or they may be fired. Uh, sometimes these disciplinary processes even come with a list of steps that employees must complete as part of, I guess you might say, their rehabilitation process. Uh, well, not all jobs have disciplinary processes, and those they do don't always have good disciplinary processes, and not all companies use them well or rightly. But the intent of these processes is both to protect the company and to protect the employee. It can protect companies for, for, wrong suits, uh, for lawsuits that could come up over wrongful termination. If they fire an employee, uh, they can then go point back to the employee's disciplinary record to say, see, we, we actually fired this employee for their performance. It can encourage employees to perform better. Uh, in theory, it is also supposed to be at a protection for the employee as well, even though it doesn't always work like that. But it's, in theory, supposed to be a protection for the employee as they're given uh, warning about their performance. They're given a chance to improve, to change, to know what it is that is not living up to the standards that their supervisor has for them. Well, as we, we come to chapter 3 of, of Jonah, perhaps it's a bit of a, a crude analogy, but you might say that God places the city of Nineveh into something of a, a disciplinary process. Uh, certainly something much more severe than we would think about than a, in a relationship with a, a company and an employee. But Jonah comes with a message of judgment and warning from the Lord for the people of Nineveh that they will be destroyed in 40 days. Well, God didn't have to provide this warning to the people of Nineveh, but he graciously does. He gives the city of Nineveh time to consider its ways well, he doesn't provide a guarantee that a change on the behalf of the people is going to, to change anything or that he will relent from his judgment concerning them if they, they do change. But with this warning and this threat of judgment hanging over their heads, the people of Nineveh do change. And they change in the hopes that God might relent and they will be spared. Well, in, in chapter 3, we don't just get a look at the, the people of Nineveh, we also get a look at the prophet Jonah again, and the genuineness of Jonah's repentance from chapter 2, uh, what we looked at last week, is put to the test. Now, God disciplined him last week, he spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and now God has, now we see at the beginning of chapter 3 that God reissues the same command that he issued at the beginning of the book. He gives Jonah the same task that Jonah had failed to complete. 
originally. So we're, we're left to wonder, will Jonah's response be any different now that God recommissions him into his service, that he gives him the same task to complete again? Or will the words that he said in the belly of the fish prove to be just empty words? Well, perhaps you've heard the phrase that, that talk is cheap. In other words, people can say all kinds of things. And the question is whether they can back up their words with their actions. Well, as we will we'll see in this chapter, as we'll see in chapter 3 of Jonah, true repentance is marked by action. Uh, that is to say, it is not just mere grief. It is not just mere regret. It is marked by a turning from sin. Uh, words of repentance are, are necessary. Grief and sorrow over sin is necessary. But at the end of the day, talk is cheap. Uh, godly repentance is marked by a change of life. That's what we see in Jonah's life in chapter 3. It's, it's also what we see in the lives of the people of Nineveh as they respond to God's message that is delivered through the prophet Jonah. So please follow along as I read from Jonah chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a, degree, a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Uh, well, in a similar way to, to chapter 1 of Jonah, I want to take chapter 3 and, and simply walk through this historical record of what happened to the great city of, of Nineveh. Uh, and so I have three points for you to consider from the text as we just kind of walk through this story. Uh, the first is God's message to Jonah in his response. The second is God's message to Nineveh in its response. And the third is Nineveh's repentance and God's response. So God's message to Jonah in his response, God's message to Nineveh in its response, and then Nineveh's repentance and God's response. And the, the main idea of the text is that godly repentance is a gift of God's grace. It is demonstrated by action, and it invites God's compassion. Godly repentance is a gift of God's grace. It is demonstrated by action, and it invites God's compassion. So first, God's message to Jonah and Jonah's response. Uh, we'll look again with me at, at verse 1 of the text. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time. I mean, what an act of God's grace that despite Jonah's rebellion, despite the fact that he did the very opposite thing that God originally told him to do, that the Lord had not cast Jonah away. 
Uh, We saw in chapter 1 that the Lord does as he pleases and he accomplishes all of his purposes. He could have certainly chosen somebody else to do the job in Nineveh. He could have replaced Jonah, but God chooses to be kind and gracious to Jonah and, and recommission him to go preach to that city as he was originally commanded to do. I think God did this for a couple of reasons. One, to display his, his grace and his kindness. But I think also because God's purpose in sending Jonah to Nineveh was not just for the people of Nineveh. It wasn't just to lead the people of Nineveh to repentance. It was because God was also at work in Jonah's life. God was at work in sanctifying Jonah. He was at work helping him grow in godliness and increase him in maturity. God had disciplined Jonah. We saw that last week, but now he was at work building him back up and restoring him to his service. And this is an act of a a loving and a gracious and a compassionate Heavenly Father. Now, any faithful parent will discipline their children. They will correct their wrongdoing. They may remove privileges for a time, but the purpose is not to, to cast away their children. No, it's an act of love intended to to teach a child in the way he or she should go. And when a a child fails, a faithful parent disciplines them to to teach them the right way. Well, then they let them try again. Uh, They teach them that they might do it differently the next time. Well, this is how the Lord is, is treating Jonah in this chapter. It's how Jesus treated the apostle Peter after Peter denied him following Jesus' resurrection, he comes to Peter and asks him three times whether he loves him. And if you remember, prior to Christ's crucifixion, Peter denies him three times. And so after his resurrection, Jesus comes back to him and he asks him three times whether he loves him. Each time Peter responds with with yes, and Jesus tells Peter then to to feed and to shepherd his sheep. In other words, to to care for his followers. Well, this, this threefold repetition of Jesus asking Peter, uh, it, it fills Peter with, with grief, but it's ultimately a, an act of a loving Savior restoring his relationship with Peter and restoring him to his service. Well, brothers and sisters, I, I don't know what your story is, and perhaps the Lord saved you quite some number of years ago, but it's been a while since you have been faithfully walking with him. And if that is true in your life, I encourage you to look at the story of Jonah and be encouraged that you have a a loving heavenly father whose grace is sufficient to forgive your sins and to restore you to a right relationship with him, to restore you to his service. Your sin does not disqualify you from future investment in the church, from loving and serving and caring for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, from being hospitable, from, from sharing the gospel, from speaking a word of encouragement to another. If you're a Christian, your sin doesn't remove God's love for you but it does damage your fellowship with him and and certainly damages your fellowship with one another. But like Jonah, restoration of your relationship with the Lord requires repentance. And friends, if if you are here and if you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are not a Christian, well, I, I want you to see that God freely offers his forgiveness to you if you will repent and believe. Maybe, you are, maybe you've been around Christian circles for quite some time. Uh, maybe you even grew up in the church, but maybe you harbor fear that pass over past sin and think that God can never forgive you. And maybe you can think of specific things that, that you've done 
in your life that you're ashamed of and you think that God could never forgive you for those things. But trust me, he can and he will. In 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul, who who persecuted and killed Christians, says this about his own conversion. Paul writes, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might, dis- might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Friends, God forgave Paul, the man who persecuted the church, killed Christians, blasphemed against the Lord. And as we will see in a moment, he forgives the people of Nineveh as well, though that their evil was so great that God sent the prophet Jonah to proclaim a message of judgment and destruction for them. And so that should tell you that you can find God's forgiveness if you call out in repentance and faith. Well, for much of the the rest of the sermon, we're going to examine the nature of true repentance, what it actually looks like to repent of your sins. But we get our first glimpse of it here in the life of Jonah. God reissues his command to Jonah, which is an act of God's grace, but it's something that also puts Jonah to the test. Was the repentance he offered in the belly of the fish genuine? Though, as we'll see just next week, Jonah goes on to, to sin again. I do think he shows that his repentance was genuine because he obeyed. He was still a, a work in progress, as are we all. But he submitted to the Lord's command and he obeyed. He turned from his previous sin and he obeyed. And that's really what repentance looks like. Jonah was faithful to his word from chapter 2, verse 9. He fulfilled what he vowed, and he was faithful to the Lord. His willingness to obey was a sign of genuine repentance. So that's God's message to Jonah in his response, and that takes us to the second point of the sermon, which is God's message to Nineveh and its response Well, so Jonah obeys and he brings a message that God gives him, which we see in verse 4 of our text. Uh, He says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Uh, That is his message. Now, I, I assume that there may have been a bit more to the message than that, but we are to see that Jonah brings to the people of Nineveh a message of judgment. That is the message he brings. He tells them of God's coming judgment for the evil that has come up before him. And if you think about it, If you were to stand in the place of the people of Nineveh, this message really leaves them with a decision. Do we believe this message and turn from our evil ways, or do we ignore it? Uh, Do we pay lip service to this message, or do we actually do something? Do we listen to this man from Israel who is telling us of a coming judgment from a God that we do not know? Or do we just keep going on with our lives? The people of Nineveh are left with a decision. Well, a number of years ago, I got to visit Mount St. Helens 
It's a, a large volcano in the northwest of the United States, and it was the site of a major and a catastrophic eruption back in 1980, uh, so just over 40 years ago. Well, like many volcano eruptions nowadays, for, for many years leading, or not many years, but I think many months and many weeks leading up to the eruption, uh, scientists kind of knew the eruption was coming. There were seismic activities, there was uh, smoke and steam being released from the volcano, there were signs that it was going to erupt. So the government set up a danger zone around the volcano. They, they urged everyone who lived with inside that danger zone to, to leave and to flee, to evacuate. Uh, most people did, uh, but famously, there was one older gentleman who lived at the foot of the mountain who refused to, to leave the home he had lived in for something like 50 years at that time. Uh, well, you probably know how the rest of the story goes. Uh, that volcano did end up erupting and the force of the blast instantly destroyed his home. He was so close to the volcano and ended up burying his home under a couple of hundred feet of rubble. Uh, he died instantaneously uh, because he ignored the warnings. He ignored those warnings and he perished while many others heeded the warnings uh, from those who, who saw the eruption coming and they lived. Well, that's similar to the, the decision that faces the people of Nineveh here. Do they heed this warning, hope it is fake, or do, they, or do they heed the warning assuming it's real, or do they ignore it assuming that it is fake? And well, as we see in the, in the text, the people of Nineveh listen to the warning from the Lord, and they turn in repentance. Uh, look again, starting at verse 4. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh by order of the king and his nobles. No person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Well, so in this response from the people of Nineveh to this message of judgment that, that Jonah brought from the Lord, we see two things. First, we see that repentance and faith is a gift of God. Uh, I mean, the message that Jonah preached was pretty simple. And it seems as if he only preached that message for one day. The people start responding on the first day that he comes to the city. As we will see in, in chapter 4, Jonah still harbored resentment towards the people of Nineveh, though he does bring this message. But despite all of this, the simplicity of the message, the fact that he only seemed to have to proclaim it one day, the fact that I'm not sure that Jonah really loved the people of Nineveh all that much at all, well, not just a few, but seeming, seemingly the whole city turns in repentance to the Lord. I mean, when was the last time you saw a whole city agree on anything? I mean, not even whole cities agree on what sports teams they're going to root for. No, I think we're, we're supposed to see that the conversion of the people of Nineveh, their faith and repentance was a mighty work of God. It was God's grace. It was God's mighty power at work in the hearts of the people of Nineveh that led them to repentance, that led them to faith. Their repentance and faith was a gracious gift of a compassionate father. Well, we, we also see 
four characteristics of godly repentance in the people of Nineveh. Four characteristics of godly repentance. We're going to look at each of those aspects in just a minute. But the overarching thing, the overarching truth that I want you to see is that repentance involves action. Uh, It involves action. In other words, it is more than regret. It is more than mere sorrow. Uh, In verse 10, the text says that God relented of his judgment when he saw the actions of the people of Nineveh. As you look at the text, there's a lot of action words used to describe what the people of Nineveh do in response to this message that Jonah brings. They believe, proclaim a fast, dress in sackcloth. The king himself gets up, takes off his royal robe, covers himself. He issues a decree. That decree tells people to fast, cover themselves with sackcloth, call out to God, and turn from their evil ways. Repentance involves action. Now, when I, when I say repentance involves action, what I don't mean to say is that we somehow earn forgiveness from God through our actions. That if we can somehow show great enough sorrow by doing quite enough stuff, that God is somehow going to then forgive us. I mean, the, the worst picture of that belief is, is those in the Middle Ages who would, who would uh, literally beat themselves and, and lead themselves to bleed, trying to so, show their sorrow over sin and earn God's favor. Uh, was what I don't mean when repentance involves action is what I don't mean is that we have to work off our sin. Uh, what I mean to say is that true repentance involves not just sorrow over sin, but turning from one's sin. Uh, Our actions are the evidence of true repentance, not the means by which we earn God's favor. True repentance is made evident by people taking steps to restore and repair relationships with God, and if they've sinned against someone else, to repair their relationships with that person as well. It involves putting off old, sinful ways of life and seeking to put on new, godly ways of behavior. And so with with that in mind, I want to look at these four elements of, of repentance, of godly repentance, of true repentance that we see in the people of Nineveh. Well, one, it involves faith. We'll look again at, at verse 4. The people of Nineveh believed God. They believed the word of the Lord that came through the prophet Jonah. They believed God did, in fact, have authority that he could bring judgment and that he would bring judgment. They believed Jonah's message, and the text says that by believing Jonah's message, that they believed God. They had faith. In fact, uh, one simple definition of faith is simply to take God at his word. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see that there can be no true repentance apart from faith in God. Uh, The reverse is also true. There can be no true faith apart from repentance. Faith and repentance are biblical concepts that go together. And we see this in the account of what happens in Nineveh. The people believe God. They had faith. What accompanies their faith? It's repentance. What do the people of Nineveh do when they believe the word of the Lord? They jump into action. They proclaim a fast. They dress in sackcloth. They repent. Repentance and faith go together. Uh, Wayne Grudem, the theologian Wayne Grudem, in uh, his systematic theology, he, he writes this. He writes, when we turn to Christ for salvation from our sins, we are simultaneously turning away from the sins that we are asking Christ to save us from. When we turn to Christ for salvation, that's faith. We are simultaneously turning away from the sins we are asking him to save us for, from. That's repentance. 
Well, so friends, this means two things for you. Uh, first, if, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, know that you can have no forgiveness of sins. You must come with faith to God. You must admit that you need a Savior. You must have faith. But two, it means that if you claim to have faith in Christ, the fruit of that salvation should be evident in your life. Your life should show the fruit of repentance. It should show that you are fighting your sin and growing in holiness. Faith and repentance aren't just words that you say. They are a way of life. They give evidence of, of new birth in Christ. The Ninevites believed and repented. And what about you? Well, the second element of genuine repentance that we see in the people of Nineveh, the first is faith. The second is sorrow over sin. Sorrow over sin. They show their sorrow by dressing in sackcloth and proclaiming a fast. Uh, if you were to read throughout the Old Testament, uh, these words, this fasting and dressing in sackcloth comes up a number of times. It is a way that people would express sorrow and grief over sin, and, and that's in fact what the people of Nineveh are doing. Their fasting and dressing in sackcloth is simply an outward representation of the sorrow of their heart. It's an outward display of their grief. Uh, and though the, the king later issues a decree, as we see in the text, for the whole city to fast, for all the, the people and the animals as well to be dressed in sackcloth, uh, we should see that this is not a, a coerced sorrow from the people. Uh, this is not just some sort of, of ritual that they are going through because the king commanded them. Uh, notice it is the people who hear and respond to the word of the Lord first. It is the people of Nineveh. They do this. They respond to Jonah's message first. They begin fasting and dressing in sackcloth on their own, and it is their actions that reach the ear of the king, and then he himself repents. The great king of Nineveh recognizes that he is not greater than God, that he is accountable for his sin to God, and he humbles himself. He displays his sorrow by, by taking off his, his royal robe, by dressing in sackcloth, by sitting in ashes. And then as the one who was responsible for the well-being of the city, he issues this decree to the people of the city. The this, this city now faced with destruction so he issues a command to the people that they all might repent and that the city might be saved. Well, even as I say that, that an element of, of genuine repentance is sorrow over sin, I think it's important to understand that repentance is not sorrow alone. As, as Grayson just read from the Apostle Paul's words to the church in Corinth, there are two kinds of sorrow over sin. There is a, a godly sorrow which produces repentance— and there is a worldly sorrow which does not. As Paul writes, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief or worldly sorrow produces death. So what's the difference between the two? What is the difference between a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow? And well, one pastor describes it this way. A worldly sorrow is sorrow over losing something dear to us, money, opportunity, recognition, or the negative opinion of others. Worldly sorrow has to do with pride, ego, and humiliation. It cares about man's opinion instead of God's. We feel sorry for the past because people no longer think highly of us like they once did. 
We feel deep distress because we love the praise of man, not because we have the fear of God. That's his description of, of worldly sorrow. But he goes on to write this about godly sorrow. Godly sorrow sees the vertical dimension of our sin. Sin is not simply a sad thing because it can wreck our lives. It is not just the the ruining of our peace. Sin does more than make God sad that his world is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin makes God angry. It is offensive to God. His wrath is aroused, not simply because we're missing out on his best, but because we have violated his law, rejected his lordship, and made ourselves gods in his place. Godly sorrow recognizes the utter sinfulness of sin and hates it more and more. A worldly sorrow cares about the loss of reputation, and godly sorrow cares about God's reputation. And so what should you take away from this? Uh, well, the, the first is that sorrow is not the same thing as repentance, or sorrow on its own is not repentance. But godly sorrow leads to repentance. It leads to turning away from sin. It leads to action. And the second thing that you should take away from this, or I should say the second thing it might lead you to do, is ask yourself what kind of sorrow you exhibit over your own sin. Is it, a, is it only a worldly sorrow that is, that's just upset about the earthly consequences of your sin, the, the loss of your own reputation, the, the loss of opportunity, perhaps a damage to an, an earthly relationship? Or is it a godly sorrow that is grieved that your sin is fundamentally an offense against a holy God? A worldly sorrow does not lead to repentance. It may lead you to, to change some behavior, but only because you think that will preserve those things that you treasure above the Lord. And godly sorrow leads to repentance. And this is the type of sorrow that was exhibited by the people of Nineveh. Well, the third element of, of true or godly repentance that we see in the people of Nineveh is that it is turning from sin. So first, faith accompanies repentance. Uh, there is godly sorrow over sin in true repentance. But third, it involves turning from sin. Uh, That can actually, in some sense, serve as a a definition for what repentance is. It is turning away from one's sin. It is to turn in the opposite direction of sin. Repentance is not just sorrow over sin. It isn't just saying you are sorry. It isn't even just trying to make up for past wrongs. It is turning from your sin going forward. And we're never going to do this perfectly on, on this side of heaven but it is to seek to live in a new manner of life. Uh, to give you a, an idea of what this looks like, if you were to, to hop in a taxi out front of the church here uh, right after our service, and you, if you were to ask the driver to take you to Corfacan, and he started heading towards Kaaba instead, well, he could tell you that he is sorry all he wants once you point out his arrow, error, but uh, you will not be convinced of his sorrow and you will not be convinced that he understands the mistake he is making unless he actually turns around and heads in the opposite direction, unless he actually turns the taxi around and heads to Kor Fakan. Well, this is a little bit of what it means to show repentance. It is to turn from the error of one's ways. Uh, this is what Jonah did. God called him to preach to the people of Nineveh. He renounced his former rebellion, and he obeyed. And this is what the people of Nineveh did. In verse 8, one of the king's commands was that each must turn from his evil ways. 
It wasn't enough to fast or dress in sackcloth. They must turn from their evil ways. Uh, The actions that God saw them take, as we see in verse 10, is that they did turn from their evil ways. And this, brothers and sisters, is at the heart of repentance. It is a willingness to turn from one's sin. This is an evidence of whether you have a worldly sorrow or a godly sorrow, is are you willing to turn from your sin, to renounce it, to live in a different way? Turning from sin is not easy. It takes time. It takes effort. You cannot do it in your own strength. It can only be done in the power of the Spirit. That's why we need to turn to the Lord in confession, need to seek him in his word, pray for his enabling grace that by his spirit you may, able to, you may be able to fight against sin. Because turning from sin is at the heart of true repentance. The final element of, of true repentance that we see in the people of Nineveh is that they plead for God's mercy. They plead for God's mercy. So in verse 8, the king commands the people to cry out to God, uh, presumably in confession of their sin, presumably to, to ask God to, to show them mercy that he might relent from their judgment. Uh, and this is, why, this is why in verse 9, the king says that he did command the people to cry out to the Lord. He's commanded the people to fast and to dress in sackcloth, to cry out to the Lord and turn from their evil ways in the hopes that God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Well, so the king hopes that the the people of Nineveh, he hopes that they will not perish. But notice the king does not presume on the Lord's mercy and compassion. He does not demand that the Lord spare them because that they have done all of these things. Uh, He seems willing to accept the consequences of their sin if God does not relent of his judgment and Nineveh is in fact destroyed in 40 days. There is no indication that he thinks their actions have made him the the city deserving of God's favor. Uh, Their current fasting and sorrow has not wiped out or erased their past evil. But the king hopes that God will be merciful and compassionate, not because the, the city deserves it, but as Jonah may have told him, God is a merciful God. God is a compassionate God. God is a God who is slow to anger but quick to forgive. Nineveh is throwing itself on God's mercy. They recognize that they are guilty and rebellious sinners, deserving of God's judgment, but pleading for God's mercy. And friends, that is a humble and a proper response to one's sin. The Ninevites believed God. They showed godly sorrow for their sin. They committed to turn from their sin, and they pleaded for God's mercy. Friends, I'm sure that there is much more that I can say about what repentance looks like, what true biblical repentance looks like, but I think what we see in the people of Nineveh is a good summary and a good picture of what genuine repentance looks like, and for that matter, really what genuine faith looks like. And so that leads us to the the last point of the sermon, which is Nineveh's repentance and God's response. Uh, So look again at verse 10. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. So again, we, we come back to that which has been the main theme of the book of Jonah, which is God's compassion to sinners. God's compassion to sinners. 
God saw their actions, not just that they were sorrowful, not just that they dressed in sackcloth, not just that they fasted, but that they turned from their evil ways. And he had compassion. He forgave their sin, and he relented from the judgment that he had pronounced on the city. Now, as I said before, their their actions did not merit God's forgiveness. It wasn't that the, the good that they did outweighed their past evil actions, so God forgave them. No, God chose to show compassion, and God chose to relent from his judgment because God is a God of mercy and compassion. In Ephesians chapter 2, this is how Paul describes God's gift of salvation. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. But God chooses to show compassion to to needy sinners, not because they deserve it, not because you deserve it, not because I deserve it, not because we have worked hard enough to obtain it, but out of his love and compassion and for his glory. Salvation comes not from works, not because you show the most outward sorrow over your sin or or do the, the most to try to make up for it and balance the scales in your favor, but because God is a God of mercy. Well, some people, as they, they read through, through Jonah chapter 3, they see that God does not actually end up destroying the city of Nineveh and that he actually relents. And they see this as an example of God changing his mind and, and not being consistent with his word. Now, how could God say that this was going to happen to the people of Nineveh and it didn't actually happen? But you should understand that, that God's warning of judgment was always a conditional warning of judgment. It is a, a warning intended to provoke the city to repentance Like a company's disciplinary process is intended to see their employees change and improve, this warning from the Lord was intended to provoke the city to repentance. It is not a case of God changing his mind or God not being faithful to his word. If he wasn't planning to show compassion, why would he have sent Jonah at all? I think Jonah himself understood this, as we'll see next week. He says that he knew that God would relent from his judgment if Nineveh Nineveh repented because God is a God of mercy and compassion. And in fact, in in Jeremiah 18, the words of another prophet, uh, we find these words of the Lord. At one moment, I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it. However, if that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster I had planned to do to it. And this is just what God did to Nineveh. They repent, and he relents because he is a God who delights to show compassion to those who humble themselves in repentance before him. He sent his son, Christ Jesus, out of his love and compassion. And because of Christ's sacrifice for sins, the Lord promises to forgive those who turn to him. But friends, know that you must turn to the Lord. You must turn to the Lord in repentance and faith to find God's forgiveness and to find his mercy and compassion. You must believe. You must have godly sorrow over your sin. You must turn from your sin and cry out for God's mercy. 
Well, as I, as I close here, I want you to, to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12 for a moment. In Matthew 12, we uh, read this text from Matthew 12 in our service for last week. And in Matthew 12, a group of Pharisees comes to Jesus and asks for Jesus to perform a miracle to prove who he was. And this request came despite Jesus already performing several signs and wonders in their mix. And so Jesus says this in response. So uh, look with me starting in verse 38 of Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching and look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and look, something greater, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees for the lack of faith, a a lack of faith that would persist throughout his ministry, uh, that would persist even after his death and resurrection. They had seen signs of miracles, they had heard his preaching, and they refused to believe. And so when they asked for another sign, Jesus says that the only sign will be the sign of Jonah, Uh, that Jonah's time in the belly of the fish pointed forward to Jesus' own death and burial and resurrection, But Jesus said that that Jonah's salvation from the belly of the fish, him being raised up from the belly of the fish, pointed forward or proved the truth of Jonah's message. Well, Jesus said that uh, in a much greater way, his own resurrection would also prove the truth of his words. Now, I don't know whether the Ninevites knew Jonah had spent time in the belly of the fish. Perhaps that's a story that had spread. Perhaps Jonah told them. But Jesus commends them that they believed the message of Jonah and that they repented. They believed in the coming judgment of the Lord. And because of their repentance, they would stand in judgment over those Israelites who saw and heard the ministry of Jesus, who heard about his resurrection, who had been given the gifts of many of the Old Testament scriptures, and they still refused to believe. And so, friends, the the question that Jonah chapter 3 and the example of the Ninevites leaves you with is, will you believe? Do you believe that there is a God who will one day return in judgment? His word says that he will. This judgment that was hanging over the city of Nineveh is just an earthly picture of the eternal judgment that awaits all who do not repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Well, Jonah chapter 3 leaves you with the question of, Do you believe that this same God who has the power to judge has the power to save? His word says that he does. In God's compassion, he has given you the sign of Jonah. He's given you the sign of Jesus. You have God's word attesting to Jonah's salvation and Jesus' resurrection. Will you believe their words and will you repent? Friends, if you do, God has also proved through his word that he is a God of mercy and compassion and that you will find salvation. Uh, that he will relent of the judgment concerning you, the eternal judgment concerning you, because for all who repent and believe of their sins, that judgment and God's wrath has been poured out on his son, Jesus Christ, who he provided out of his love and compassion. 
And so I urge you to cry out for God's mercy today if you do not know him and if you have never done that before. And brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, I want you to see that repentance is not just something for non-Christians. It is to be the, the pattern of a Christian's life. We continually need to remind ourselves of the gospel that we might be stirred up to believe, to have godly sorrow over our sin, to turn from our sin, and to come boldly to the throne of grace in repentance so that we might find God's mercy. And we have the assurance that we will because of the blood of Christ, but repentance Continual repentance is to be the pattern of the Christian life. So I urge you to make it the pattern of your life as well. And godly repentance is a gift of God's grace. It is demonstrated by action, and it invites God's compassion. Let's pray.